Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness, and she will not allow herself to be separated and banned from her two sisters without taking them along with herself in an act of mysterious vengeance. We can be sure that whoever sneers at her name, as if she were the ornament of a bourgeois past, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray, and soon will no longer be able to love. Hans Urs von Balthasar, Seeing the Form. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. I hope you all had a very happy Easter this past week, and that you remember that it is still Easter, so I hope you're still in the celebratory mood. Where I am, uh, spring has finally decided to arrive. It's not being quite so tentative. So I enjoyed a very beautiful and and gloriously sunny uh, Easter day with family. And it really does feel like we have turned uh, from winter towards spring, and that is such a welcome thing. I'm so excited to share this week's episode with you all. One of the things that I have tried to do with this podcast and that I would like to do more in the future is podcasts focusing on a figure who I think is important in the history of theology, art, or culture. So in the past, we've done an episode on specifically on Dante. And for my own personal um, sense of importance, I've done one on Rich Mullins. But today I'm excited to to explore a figure who is uh, immensely important, but perhaps less known. And that is Hans Urs von Balthasar. Balthasar was a Swiss theologian and Catholic priest who was eventually appointed to be a cardinal shortly before he died. And he's a hugely important figure in theology in the 20th century, and specifically uh, with theology concerning beauty. So theological aesthetics was kind of one of the great contributions that he made. If you dabble at all in theology and the arts, you will come across his name. So I thought he would be a worthy figure to dive into and to explore. So discussing Hans Urs von Balthasar with me today is Professor Ben Quash, who's the Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London. In addition to writing books like Found Theology, History, Imagination, and the Holy Spirit, and Abiding, and Heresies and How to Avoid Them, Professor Quash is leading a project called The Visual Commentary on Scripture, which endeavors to pair every passage in scripture with three paintings from museums around the world. It was a pleasure and an honor to record this podcast with him, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it very much. Professor Ben Quash, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me, Joy. So why don't we begin? Um, give a sense of yourself and what you spend your days doing and what your current research interests are, because I know I'm kind of um, diving deep into uh, some of the books in your past, but what do you spend your days doing these days? 
So I teach at King's College London. Uh, I'm in the I'm the first occupant of a chair um, in Christianity and the Arts at King's, which was a real a real bold step, I guess, for for my mm. institution to take. Um, back in 2007, they uh, they were thinking of how to engage more fully with the cultural life of London mm. uh, and King's. Um, across all departments, so all the, all the different disciplines within King's, which is a whole university in itself. Mm. Um, and, uh, and a huge amount has happened since then, but one of the early initiatives was from the Department of Theology and Religious Studies that thought this, this is um, a rich area. London is the place to pursue conversations mm. uh, between all art forms and religious ideas. And so they um, got the green light to create this chair in Christianity in the Arts. I was working in Cambridge University at the time and uh, and saw this and thought that would be the most wonderful job. Uh, mm. It's a kind of blank slate because nobody had ever done it before. So there wasn't even a specification of what particular mm. strands of the arts you needed to focus on. It, it was it was up to you to kind of make, up to whoever got the post to make, to make mm. the job. And, and so I was incredibly lucky to get it. And since then, um, I've been, in a way, most of the time responding to opportunity mm. rather than driving a particular programme. But the opportunities have come thick and fast. And the most, the most exciting ones have been in the area of the visual arts, even though my own background was more in literature. Mm. Uh, so we have a partnership with the National Gallery in London. Mm. We run an MA programme jointly with them, which is the only program of its kind in the world as, as a partnership between a, a theology department and a major international art gallery. There's nowhere else so far that I know that has anything like that. So we get lots of international students coming into London to study for that. And I direct a big project called the Visual Commentary on Scripture, mm. which is about four years into its work. And it creates online exhibitions, um, to, which are forms of reflection, commentary, conversation mm. with the biblical text so our wildly ambitious aim is to cover the whole of scripture eventually we so far have something approaching 300 exhibitions online all of them with three works of art each so mm. uh, so about 900 works of art in high resolution and contributors from all over the world who curate these mm. little exhibitions um, and for me that's you know that's what I spend most of my day at the moment doing is commissioning and editing those commentaries and I'm very excited that you're going to be writing one of them for <laughs> right so um that would be great so um I'm really interested in how scripture comes alive in art as well mm. and and the kind of hermeneutical questions that go with mm. that what it is to interpret scripture to read scripture as a conversation partner with contemporary life and mm. contemporary art as well as historical works mm. Yeah. yeah, so that's my, my that's a snapshot of some of what I do at King's. Yeah, that is, it's wonderful to hear you describe that um, all in one go. And I personally really enjoy the visual commentary on scripture. I will say one serious and, um, and sincere thing, and then I will ask a question which has always bugged me about it. Um, I, it's just such an ambitious project, but it's so fun not only to it really does open up scripture. I think in some ways there, are, it reminds you that we, we come to scripture and it gives us something to think about what we also bring ourselves to it and in bringing ourselves 
part of what we bring is our imagination and what we see. And, and those images sometimes help open up what we see in the text and wouldn't see there otherwise if we didn't have new ways of thinking and imagining it, uh, which I just absolutely love. And it, it's an interesting intersection between, as you said, hermeneutics and a little bit devotional. It's hard not to feel devotional when you're reading these texts and looking at these mm. images. And it's also uh, one of the things I, I find enjoyable about it is going through and getting to see many theologians and thinkers and essayists that I uh, have enjoyed or looked up to and seeing what images they chose and what, you know, there's something fun to me about that too. There's kind of a personal element to it. Um, But my, but my, my perhaps silly question is how are you going to cover all the bits in Leviticus? Well, we sometimes have longer chunks of scripture. So the, The division of scripture was one of the early questions we had to Mm. face, how to divide up the canon. Mm. And and I was always very aware that um, Mm. in some cases, a single verse will have been the subject of Mm -hmm. intense meditation. And often the same verses will be the ones that have generated vast bodies of art. So, you know, the one verse in John's gospel that describes Mary at the foot of the cross, that verse has had musical mm-hmm. settings you know poems about it musical settings endless paintings mm-hmm. it was the, it's been the basis of a whole further genre of uh, of artistic treatments of the lamentation over the dead christ the pieta tradition you know this one verse so to so you know that one has to have an exhibition it does in fact already have an exhibition mm-hmm. all to itself um leviticus we have an exhibition if you go on there we don't have many yet on leviticus mm-hmm. but we have one that covers I think, three chapters or, mm. or so and and I, that just to be realistic about what's possible mm. um and what's fruitful in terms of y- using people's creative time and energy mm. without suggesting that you know uh some parts of the bible aren't worth reading but um we, you know, we're going to have very varying, we do have very varying lengths passage at the core of each exhibition. And the one of the way I, ways I, I think about this is that we try and pause where the church has paused longest mm. with mm. scripture. Um, and often that is also where artists have spent more time. Mm. Uh, it doesn't always correlate, but often it does. But pausing with the church, and I think that picks up on your point that although mm. our contributors are not all Christians, or even mm. religious people, um, the the VCS is it is shaped by the church's relationship with scripture historically mm. and in the present, and it doesn't want to apologise for that. Mm. Um, lots of ways, it's it. We think the lecture we often use the divisions of scripture that mm. are in some of the main lectionaries that churches mm. use, um, so that the passages people will be preaching on. Mm. our passages we'll offer them exhibitions for mm. um, but you're right that is that's something that has required quite a lot of thought um, I would imagine. And, mm. yeah. and also lots of kind of lots of things in the prophets yeah are quite I this sound I don't mean this to sound negative but they're quite samey you know that some of the things prophets say and maybe this is a, a as it were, a powerful witness to the consistency of God's message. Mm. But you know, there's a lot of prophets, and and many of the things are, you know, if you don't stop worshiping idols, this bad, you know, a really bad thing is going to happen to you. And then, you know, and then there's a joyous moment where, you know, God God's mercy is disclosed, and you know, 
that that there's you know I sometimes wonder will we have enough different exhibitions mm. to respond to these repeating motifs that we mm. often get in scripture and but of course we do because every curator mm -hmm. brings different interests and yeah. you know there is actually an infinity of possibilities both in scripture and in the world of art that you can bring together yeah well and I think that's one of the strengths of the of the project itself um and yes and my my question about Leviticus one is an earnest one because I think it is interesting to think about um exploring the whole of scripture and I think that Leviticus for all of its many kind of difficult bits and like things that are genuinely troubling or, or difficult. Um, and then there's kind of just mundane bits, but I think there's also something quite, um, there are moments in Leviticus that are quite illuminative and, and that kind of remind us of the bodiliness and the everydayness of the faith yeah. that we live in, in a way that I, I don't think um, that's maybe not highlighted as much often. Um, and so I thought, I'm sure that there are, and I, I've already seen some of the, the exhibitions, uh, rich things to be gained from that, from that much maligned book. Yeah. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think one of the things I've become more aware of is that how many different Christian traditions pra in practice work with a canon within a canon. Mm. And that includes, you know, some very sort of biblically oriented Christian traditions you know, some of the big evangelical traditions, they, they do often work with, in terms of the regular uh, preaching ministry they have, they often tend to work with quite small numbers of texts that often they go back to. Mm. Um, and for me, working on this project has brought me as, you know, as somebody who's ordained and in the Church of England and has a ministry, it's brought me up against texts I actually didn't know, mm. um, which is, you know, and 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 it's made me realise how much there is to be discovered and gained from going off the beaten track mm. that I'm familiar with in the in the normal yearly round or three round of readings that I'll hear. Um, so that's really exciting, um, discovering parts of scripture that that very often get bypassed. Mm. Um, yeah, it's amazing as you're describing it to me how much um, doing this project on visual art has led you into this very kind of intense encounter with scripture itself and with the word because you know studying theology and art so often those two are pitted against each other there's this sense you know sometimes the reformers could be worried that there was there were too many images too many statues um but but for this project and for you it seems like actually intentionally putting them into conversation hasn't led you only into a deeper encounter with art but it's actually led you quite uh into kind of a enmeshed gritty relationship with scripture itself and I think that's a really interesting element of of the project too is kind of challenging that idea we might have that word and image are necessarily opposed <clears throat> yes absolutely I I think it's it's true to say that the um that the the recent decades, let's say, have seen, in, certainly in the West, have seen visual art emerging as a new lingua franca. So something that perhaps especially younger generations mm. use to communicate with each other, often without necessarily words at all. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this is, of course, hugely accelerated by social media and mm. um, particularly those platforms that, that lead with images. Mm. So, and also, you know, what what's been the phenomenon of 
the rise of modern contemporary art galleries as major cultural landmarks, as mm -hmm. destinations. Mm -hmm. When you go to a city, one of the first things you do is to go and see their contemporary or modern art museum. You know, this has all happened really in the last few decades, and it's, this is fascinating to me. And for those traditions that have not usually had a relationship with images, or Protestant traditions especially, the, the missional imperative has always been there to, to commend the gospel in every language. So if visual languages have become some of the most used mm. and shared languages of the contemporary world, there's a new imperative, I think, to engage, mm. to, to, to communicate the gospel in that, in that language alongside all the other ones. Mm. So for me, I think that we've seen a, a kind of a new alignment of traditionally aniconic traditions mm. uh, to embrace mm. to, to embrace art, or at least mm. to take it seriously. Mm. Um, which is why I think we're getting as much interest from Protestants and mm. particularly, you know, evangelicals as as from Catholics and Orthodox who've mm. who've always lived and with and used visual art hmm. yeah no that's something I um on this podcast a lot of my listeners who come from more Protestant evangelical backgrounds express a desire to kind of dig into um yeah thinking about these things in a serious and in a Christian way um and that's exciting uh this is not at all what we were planning on talking about straight out the gate but I'm enjoying it thoroughly uh but it leads me to one more question and then I then well I won't say one more question because who knows another question could, could come up um, but I think something that's interesting in what you just said is that there's this imperative to speak the language of art, to proclaim, to proclaim the gospel in some sense in art. But of course, uh, one of the tensions with that is that so much of the art world now is non-representational. And there's also this sense that to take art seriously is to take it seriously as something that's more than merely representational, right? That it might represent something, um, but that there's this interesting line between you know, art is not only communicating or else it would be propaganda, right? There's a sense that a lot of people realize, oh, art's quite good at making people feel things. That's great. We can use that for whatever message we have, whether that's Christian or not. Um, and so it's interesting to me to see this development of when Christians traditions start taking art seriously, part of taking art seriously is treating it as more than merely message, even though it also is message. Has that been something you've thought about, as, especially when you're doing this kind of engagement between text and image? Is that something that's come up? Yes. And, and actually, one of our key principles is that we don't want um, our curators only to choose works of art that are, uh, that are um, direct responses to the biblical text or in some sense, Christian works of art. And of course that takes you into all kinds of complicated territory anyway, mm -hmm. makes a work of art Christian. Um, but setting that aside, for us, one, some of the most successful exhibitions have been ones where the works of art that the curators have chosen mm. uh, have had no prior relationship with the biblical text at all. And the, the artists may have no knowledge of or interest in mm. Christianity. Um, I think that the theological account I want to give of that is that, you know, we inhabit one world. Mm -hmm. um, Christians may see this, do see this as a world that is that derives its coherence and beauty from 
the one creator who made it. It's mm. it's a world that hangs together. It's a world that means things, that's, that has truth and goodness and beauty. This is what your podcast celebrates. Um, but, um, but everyone's in it. So there may be multiple perspectives on this, but the, it's, it's, if you like, a confidence in the oneness of the world that undergirds our mm -hmm. desire to let things come into conversation. In anticipation, they will be able to speak to each other um not because anyone intended certain things by them necessarily but because they share a world which yeah and it's a world that has its own mm. congruence that has its own you know interconnectedness that we don't have to give to it we can try and discover it so so art that is as it were asking questions about any aspect of the world mm. can can come into conversation with scripture mm. Mm. um and and it's seeing what happens when they talk to each other that's so exciting. Um, so I hope that answers your it does. question it, to some extent. It does. So I think because I think didactic art is often disappointing. You know, mm. didactic art often, yeah, it gives you what you sort of thought you were going to get in the first place. Mm. And I'd much rather something that transforms your expectations and leaves mm. you different at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it is that. I think what we want is part of taking art seriously is that you begin to take the world more seriously as a place that discloses God, yeah. God's grace, God's beauty, God's goodness. And, um, and that it's almost like didactic art lacks a little bit of faith. It lacks, it, it lacks the belief that actually, if you do open up the world, if you do look at beauty, you will find God there. And it's interesting because I had um, a, a almost very similar conversation with Rowan Williams a few weeks ago about literature and the yeah. kind of um, the way that Dostoevsky trusts that you can show all of the ugliness in the world and all of the difficulty and the pain because he has this sense that God is there underneath it all. And so showing all of that, telling the truth, telling, you know, shining light on it isn't, uh, you can kind of trust that people will still find God there at the bottom of it all. And I think there's a similar nature with, with visual art that there's, there's a sense that we can, anything can disclose, can be a means of disclosure if you really kind of trust that at the ground of all of that being and the ground of that beauty is a God mm. who wants to be disclosed. Um, yes. And so that it makes sense to put it in conversation with scripture because it's, scripture itself should be helping us see the world um, more yeah. clearly as well. Yeah. Yeah, that puts it really well. Which I guess leads us... Um, um, neatly into um, somebody that I wanted to talk to you about today. One of the things I like to do on this show is to try to give people kind of introductions to thinkers or or artists that they should know about. And one that I, I really know less about, I was just saying this to you, than I feel that I should as someone who has done a PhD in theology, imagination of the arts, is Hans Urs von Balthasar. Did I say his name correctly? Yeah, Balthasar, I guess. If you're Balthasar, being... Balthasar, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and you have done some, some work on, on this thinker and he's, he's interesting because he, he is thinking a lot about, he thinks about truth, beauty, and goodness, these ideas that are transcendental, that wherever, that all of reality can be described as having these things because they're, they're within God. Um, but he, he really provided a lot of, um, tools, I think, for what we might call theological aesthetics, describing, um, what is happening with beauty and the human person. So tell us a bit, 
just start, I think, with giving us a sense of who he is and kind of his context in history. Yes, he was born in um, the very early 20th century, 1905, I think, in Switzerland. He was a Swiss, German-speaking Swiss um, Catholic, Roman Catholic, and um, brought up in a in a rather kind of grand family. Usually, if you have Von in your name, in your surname, that's a sign of a certain kind of aristocratic pedigree. Mm. So uh, he was from a good family, as it were, but a very devout family. And um, as a young man, he he went and, and very cultured. So he was a very, very good pianist, a very good musician ex and exposed to literature and visual art, all kinds of things. In fact, he's he, these um, he's been described as one of the last sort of great polymaths and maybe one of the last mm. sort of really cultured men of the 20th century. Um, uh, but as a young man, he he entered the Jesuit order the Society of Jesus, and was trained initially in a um, place called Fourvière, which is near Lyon in France, and then later near Munich in a place called Pulach. Uh, and this is an interesting period for, for, for him because he very quickly discovered that he intensely disliked the form that Roman Catholic mm. theology took when it was taught in seminaries. You know that it, he felt it was an arid desert. He described it as as something you know that was desiccated in that way, um, partly because this this sort of inheritance of neo scholastic theology had codified doctrine. You know, and in a way, it's a magnificent achievement of sy mm. systematic theology, really systematic uh, theology, where propositions are set up in vast edifices, all interconnected, um, an answer to everything within the system. But what Balthazar was missing was what he felt was the vibrant life of theology, the sense that this was an organic living mm. tradition and that it involved relationships with, mm. with, with Christ and with the saints and, and so on. And, oops, um, and one of the things that he, um, he wanted to recover was the, the richness and warmth of the patristic mm. of patristic ways, of early church ways of doing theology, which were less systematized often more homiletical and, and rich in imagery, um, literary imagery and biblical imagery often as well. So he, he sat in, in, in seminary with earplugs in, sort of blocking out the lecturer and reading the church fathers. Mm. And two of his earliest works were, were books on um, early church theologians, Gregory of Nyssa uh, and Maximus the Confessor. I just found so a you, lovely copy of the Nyssa one at the St. Philip's Bookshop, if you know that in Oxford recently. Right, wonderful. Yeah, well, it's well <laughs> worth the read. So that's why, and then um, he, uh, eventually at the, at the um, when the Second World War began, shortly afterwards, he moved back to Switzerland, to Basel, which was a largely Protestant Swiss city, when he became chaplain to the University of Basel. And that was the university where Karl Barth, the great, the great Protestant theologian, possibly, probably the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century, was teaching. And Balthazar uh, was hugely impressed by Barth. He already had been beforehand. Um, apparently carried the church dogmatics or the latest volume of it around with him, <laughs> like a cat carrying a kitten, somebody said. And, and for people... Uh, I'll introduce the same momentarily. People who don't know that 
Bart's dogmatics are enormous. I think they, 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 he didn't finish them. Right. And I think, did he finish? No, he didn't finish them. And they were, I think it was a million words at the point at which he had not finished them. I think somebody's, or I'm sure not. What was it? 60? I heard it was 60. Six, Six million, million. I had. Yeah. That can't be possible. Anyway, it yeah. was very, very they're large. Not, they're not small words. <laughs> no. Lots of them are not small words. Um, <laughs> but I think at that point, Bart was, you know, still only on section two of mm. the dogmatics, eventually became four, all of them with several volumes. Um, but Balthazar lectured on Bart in Basel. So he Balthazar, although he was the chaplain, also offered lectures from a Catholic point of view. And he lectured on Bart, and Bart used to attend the lectures, which is a mm. great thing to try and imagine. And said he understood, Balthazar understood him better than he understood himself. Um, and I think if you want to understand Balthazar, you need to understand several things. First of all, this patristic influence, which mm. was very much part of the wider movement in, in Catholicism in the early 20th century, called the ressourcement, so the, going back to the sources, mm. which actually opened it more to engage with modernity. Mm-hmm. So there's the first one, the patristic legacy. Then there's the encounter with Bart, um, and Bart shared too this sense of a of, of a God who acts, not a system, but you know encounter mm-hmm. with a God who acts. And um, and then there's the Jesuit tradition, and especially the Ignatian tradition, which is at the heart of mm-hmm. the Jesuit tradition. Which is if you've ever anyone who's ever done the spiritual exercises or, mm. or knows a bit about them will know that's also very dramatic. You know, mm. you immerse yourself through meditation on scripture, In you enter the story, mm. uh, you become a character as it were. And then finally, another friendship he made when he arrived in Basel, which was with a, a woman mystic called Adriana von Speyer, who he was very, became very close to. He was her spiritual director. She converted to Roman Catholicism. And she had a whole series of very intense visions, which Balthazar regarded as marks of sanctity hmm. and, and recorded and um, progressively his work refers to her visions as part of the theological work that he's doing. And that too is highly dramatic. I mean, the story of his relationship with Adriana is full of this sense of actually a God active um, and, and an entry into the drama of God with the world that they both experienced and um, all of this, I think, explains the sort of theology that he wrote, which is profoundly, um, uh, you know, it's concerned with sort of springing off the page and dragging mm. you into it. You know, it sort of wants you to enraptured, enraptured. Mm. And that's the sort of language he uses. Revelation is rapture, not in this modern mm. sense of, you know, left behind novels and all of that, but you know, you're caught up into something when you encounter God in Revelation. And that's as much an aesthetic experience as anything else. Mm. So one of the things that strikes me as you're saying that is the sense of kind of the friendships that he he had. So he had this, this friendship with Karl Barth, the, this kind of intense relationship with Adriana von Speyer. Do you think that 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 sense of, and you think you already mentioned this, relationship, friendship, that that's a guiding principle of his of his work and of how he thinks about theology? It is. I mean, I think, oddly, I, I don't know much about his uh, biography, um, or at least, I yeah, I haven't read a great deal of sort of personal accounts mm. of him. Um, although I, I know that towards the end of his life, he could come over as a rather chilly hmm. and slightly 
aloof person. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I think what you're absolutely right that he thought theologically with the category of relationship a great mm -hmm. deal. So one of the key categories for him is personhood. Mm. And um, he explores, and because of the dominance of the metaphor of drama for him, a lot of mm. this is about um, how the self is discovered in relationship, above all mm. relationship with God, but also in the relationships within the church. Mm. And so he talks about that the task of the Christian is to become a dramatic person. Mm. <laughs> and that means getting beyond the social identities that we construct for ourselves or that are constructed for us to find who we are for God. So God, God, you know, the real us, the theological person that we are is the real us. And mm. the real us is, is a task. You have to discover who that is. Um, but it's, it's, it's discovering and becoming the you that you are for God above mm. all. The way you discover that is through sets of relationship that constitute your life in the church mm. with the living and the departed so with the saints who've already gone before as well as those around you in who are still living in this world and and for him all of this is part of entering the drama so it's highly relational you're absolutely right and he explores the trinitarian life also in strongly relational categories um through this sort of i thou encounter mm both the I thou encounter with the creature and God, but also the way in which Father, Son and Spirit um, are themselves dramatically, mm. divine life is dramatic in itself. Mm. Um, with While avoiding, mostly avoiding the suggestion of tritheism, mm. um, occasionally of slightly <laughs> talks about there are three, three different sets of three different, centers of consciousness but generally he avoids that and um mm. and it's better when he does of course <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but there's a drama in god as it were for balthazar as well mm. Mm. it's kind of ongoing conversation that is yeah an eternal discovery what does he mean by that word drama like if you were to if you were what what would the antithesis of drama be um the the ultimate drama for him is the eschatological one. So his early doctoral work was all on the idea of the eschaton in the German imagination, mm -hmm. the apocalypse of the German soul. It became published as a book called The Apocalypse of the German Soul. And he's looking at that, if you like, secular versions of apocalypse that emerge mm -hmm. in, in German philosophical thought mm -hmm. in the 18th and 19th century. But for him, the eschatological horizon is the horizon of the of the theolog of the theodrama, mm. the drama of humanity and of the whole creation with God. Um, so it's how we prepare ourselves for the consummation of all things, and and that involves, as I was saying, the discovery of who you are, and who you're meant to be, um, but also the participation in the dynamics of Christ's sacrifice, and. Um, triumph mm. um so perhaps one of the more uncomfortable parts of Balthazar's theology is his strong emphasis on submitting to mm. uh the will of God for you mm. often med mediated by the church and that can that can become you know some quite sort of heavy-handed language about obedience and submission mm. some of it quite heavily gendered 
Mm. So, you know, the Christian is is constructed by Balthazar as female in relation to a God who often sounds very male and it's all about submission. So this has not been one of the, perhaps the, the more celebrated aspects of his legacy. Um, but it's there, you, you can't really avoid it in Balthazar. But it gives you an insight into what I think, I think it's important to understand what he wants to say in that, which is that, you know, sacrifice is at the heart of the theodrama. Mm. And that is, for me, one of the things that I, like about when he when he puts it this sort of way is when he's he fundamentally explores that as love mm. um and he's also good on love um and when the 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 dynamic of sacrifice is conceived you know as an extraordinary divine generosity in which we're invited to participate i like him <laughs> um <laughs> And I think there's something to be got from bearing with some of this rather, sometimes rather kind of rebarbative language about obedience and sacrifice in order to get to that vision of love and generosity, which is at the heart mm. of so much of his thought. Mm. And I, I mean, it makes sense in some way, I think, when you described the kind of Jesuit legacy, that emphasis on discovering or discerning what is God's will is quite central to, to the Jesuit yeah. kind of tradition. Um, but then yeah. itself, it is also a, a life of obedience. Did he did he stay did he stay with the Jesuits throughout his whole life, or am I remembering correctly that he eventually? No, no, he didn't. He did depart, and that's interesting because <clears throat> his his uh, relationship with Adriana <clears throat> led them to found a new religious order, <clears throat> um, a secular institute. It was called called the Community of Saint John, named after John the Evangelist, and so and the. The idea was that this would be an, an order in which whose members lived under vows, mm. but could be married and have and have jobs in the world. Mm. So they were they were as it were embedded in the world, but but living a, under a rule of life. And it mm. still exists, the community. Um, uh, but the his superiors in the Jesuit order felt that he couldn't both be a member of one religious order and running another one. Uh, <laughs> And also, I think that I think you know almost certainly there was some discomfort about about the Adrienne dimension. <laughs> she, mm. you know, mystics uh, take a long time to ratify the the authenticity of mystical experiences, and you know, and it, so Balthazar's complete belief in her and and the intensity of their relationship, which I think. You know, did it all involve him living with her and her husband in their house for many years? Just probably caused some discomfort, and you know, maybe one day the full story will be known and shared. I don't know, but but for for this combination of reasons, it, it, he was he was asked to leave the Jesuit order, and mm. he remained involved with the community of Saint John, uh, mm. but no, no longer a Jesuit. But the, the Ignatian tradition still runs through his thought. And spirituality yeah. yeah undimmed as it were so um something that he's often known for is kind of his uh engagement with the idea of beauty um and and that the image of beauty is christ or the cross that beauty is not just nice things that we see so tell us a little bit about his yeah. thinking around beauty so he um 
his masterwork is this, well, in English, it's 15 volumes. So he's not quite up there with Bart, Karl Bart, but he's pretty, pretty, you know, prolific. Mm. And it's divided into three sections. Um, the first is called The Glory of the Lord, which is seven volumes in English. The middle section is called The Theodrama, which I've been talking about a bit, and that's five volumes. And then Theologic is three volumes, which it isn't quite finished. He kind of used some old material and uh, in a way it's perhaps the less developed part of the trilogy. But the structure is a very deliberate um, recollection of the medieval tradition of the transcendentals. Mm. So truth, goodness and beauty. But it, uh, and also uh, in a sense, it's a response to Kant, Immanuel Kant's mm. three great critiques, which were pure reason, practical reason and aesthetic judgment. Mm. And what, what Balthazar does is reverse the order. So glory of the Lord is about beauty or aesthetics. Then drama is about goodness, about acting well, doing the right thing. And theologic is about truth. So what he's saying is, is a, a direct response to enlightenment modernity. And he's saying, you don't approach truth, as it were, just with the pure and um, uh, kind of emotionless tools of the intellect. Mm. Um, you own, and then move on to ask in the light of those rational principles, how to act. And then, then last of all, think maybe a bit about um, aesthetics. You, you only begin to approach truth if you first are entranced, mm. wrapped, enraptured, to go back mm. to that word, um, by something. That's what involves you in the divine life, the divine drama, and it's only having been involved, having been caught up into this, mm. that you begin to know what truth, real truth is, because real truth is disclosed only in participation. Um, Real truth is the dynamic of sacrifice and generosity and mm. love that is at the heart of God. That's truth. You know, there's a lot, of course, there's logic and all sorts of things like that. Mm. But, but you know, the real approach to truth goes through the heart of the cross. And so you, and you, will only, you will only begin to join in the drama if you're first um, enticed into mm. it, drawn in. So the word, as he puts it, the word beauty has to come, has to be our first word. Mm. Um, but then, as you say, this isn't just um, superficial beauty. This isn't just pleasure, sensory pleasure, because real beauty, our senses of beauty are broken and reconstituted by Christ. If, just as our sense of what truth and goodness are as well, revelation doesn't just confirm what we already thought or felt mm. it challenges and reconfigures it so part, a lot of what he explores in the glory of the lord is is the challenge to our pre-existing conceptions of beauty not the complete denial of them but a, a kind of challenge and a building on a building on them but towards something that you know we may initially never have thought of as beautiful mm. and as you rightly say that the consummate form of that is the form of Christ on the cross who's who's disfigured but in this disfigured state uh, is the perfect expression of love and, and there is nothing more beautiful than that love mm. and when we've seen that in a way we've seen 
to the heart of revelation. Mm. So yeah, a summons of love through the cross means that we we are drawn as as by something that requires an aesthetic response. But in being drawn, our aesthetic responses are themselves undergoing a huge change. Mm. Yeah. That will then be a lens through which we see everything else. Mm. Yes, uh, that is such a, a beautiful idea, if that is the right way to say it. Um, and I think there's so much resonance with that, too. When you think about our own world, where I think it's very difficult if we, you know, you, you began talking about trusting art because we're all looking at the same world, even if we see different perspectives on it. And I think when we think about living in this world and trying to discover what is true or, or how to act correctly, it feels like we, it's all, it feels almost impossible to begin with what is true in our world. Like we, we kind of get into gridlock from the very beginning. But I think if you reverse that order, even just in relationships with others is saying, well, perhaps we can't initially agree with what is, how to get to what is true. That, that sense of beauty, of attraction, of enticement, of the things that stop us in our tracks. I always think of, um, I used to, I did my undergrad in California and I once was driving on one of the perilous, I think I was on the, the one, the perilous kind of highway by the sea. And I saw all these stopped cars and I thought, oh my gosh, there's been a terrible wreck, like something's happened. And so I pulled over and then I realized that everyone had just stopped because there was this beautiful sunset. And there was this, there's this kind of miraculous way in which this beauty oriented all of us around it um, and, you know, figured us toward it. And I think that where we may struggle as people and as a culture to get to what is true, what is the right thing to do, there is still this attraction of beauty that orients us around itself. And that when we, be, when we begin there, when we begin by allowing ourselves to be oriented around the same beautiful thing, um, that is sometimes a better way in, I think, for journeying and, and figuring out what is good and true um, in our kind of contentious times. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, I think the sense of uh of um truth well truth is polarizing at the moment in our world in a way that you know is alarming and mm. um and in my experience both pastorally and pedagogically teaching in university some of the best ways to establish the relationships in which there can then be a shared pursuit of truth is is to first of all let people meet in encounters with art mm. where there is not an immediate right or wrong answer and they kind of learn about each other and um and share things that then become a relational framework for the exploration mm. of truth mm. um, and i think as a society we need more of that i could not agree more and uh, I, I feel like we could talk for many, many more hours, but I, I have appointments and so do you. So I'll end with a, a question related to that, which is what is something that you have encountered recently that is beautiful or a book or a piece of art that you would send other people off to look at if they need some beauty in their life? Oh, gosh, Joy. Um, that's one of those kind of googlies. Do you know cricket? <laughs> 
I know. I always have the feeling. It's like when someone asks me, what's your favorite book? And like, I, I am a book person. I have read many books, but whenever anyone asks me that, I think I've never read a book. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess the, um, for me, the, the real um, joy of recent, of recent weeks has been gardening. And mm-hmm. I, we have a small patch of land which um, was really scrubby and um, had, you know, it had caravans on it in the past, which had cement bases and, um, and progressively, whenever I have a minute, I've, I've been kind of rewilding it mm. and planting hedges and uh, making a wildflower meadow. And I say recent weeks, actually, now it's, it's a year and a half. And it's just starting mm. to really come come into come into its own. Mm. So the hedges are are now just bursting into leaf, and mm. I feel like each one has a is a living thing. I mean, they're a bit like C.S. Lewis with the trees. You know, each of these hedge plants feels like a spirit somehow, and they're all mm. lining the edges of the field like a congregation around the edge. Mm. Um, the wildflower yeah. seeds were amazing last year and I think they're going to be even better this year um, but also that sense of getting a small patch of land into or, into into order and this is about participating mm. you know good, good gardening is not imposing imposing it's participating in what nature is already capable of but allowing it recipro- you and it to reciprocally change each other mm. so that it becomes an expression of your loves but you become changed by its its needs and its you know, the plant's own needs and desires because they have things they want to do and you need to respond to them. So it's this little patch of land that's kind of taking off and uh, becoming wild again. Um, that's, yeah, that's for me the excitement at the moment. That is, the beauty. That, that is wonderful. And I love that you are you are helping helping it to be wild again. You are nurturing it into wildness. Yeah. You are helping yeah. in its drama. Yes. It is becoming uh, through relationship. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, that, that's a very nice way of putting it. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me and for discussing these things. Where can people find uh, the visual commentary and scripture? It's thevcs.org. So the VCS is all one word and .org. That's all you need. And a world of art and um, yes. conversation will open up. Yes, many things to enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Joy. It's great to see you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Speaking with Joy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go leave a rating and review on iTunes and make sure to share with your friends on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, where you can find me at Join Us the Brave. I'd also love to encourage you to purchase a copy of my new book, Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, which is available everywhere books are sold. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week.